0: Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Suwannee Review Podcast.
1: Hello, listeners of the Suwannee Review Podcast. I'm David Colbert. I'm an associate professor of Spanish at the University of the South, more commonly known as Suwannee. And I'm the guest host of today's episode. I'm here today with Kirmen Uribe. Kirmen Uribe is from Ondarroa in the Basque country in Spain. He is a writer of children's books, essays, and newspaper columns, but he's primarily known as a poet and novelist. He writes in Basque, but has been translated into more than 20 languages, including Spanish, English, and Japanese. His debut novel, Bilbao, New York Bilbao, published in 2008, won Spain's National Prize for Narrative, the country's most prestigious literary award. It is translated into English. His poetry book, Meanwhile, Take My Hand, also translated into English ably by Elizabeth Macklin, was a finalist for the 2008 Penn Award for poetry and translation. Udibe has lived in New York since 2008. He was awarded a New York Public Library Coleman Center Fellowship to conduct archival research and has remained in the city with his family, teaching literature and creative writing at Barnard College and New York University. He has just published a novel about his New York experience, which means the prior life of dolphins. And we have breaking news, which is that that novel just won Spain's critics prize for Basque narrative, meaning that a panel of critics judged it to be the best Basque prose book of the year. Thank you for being here and welcome. Thank you, David. So, Kidman, would you mind reading us some of your work?
2: Yeah, I will read you a poem from my first book of poems, Meanwhile, Take My Hand, Bitarte Aneldu Eskutik. And this poem is the last poem in the volume, and it is called May, Mayatza Maiatza. Begira. shartuda Maiatza. Sabaldudu berebetazal urdina portuan. Erdu. Aspaldian ez zure berri izan, ikarati abiltze eta umetan ito genituen katakumeaiek bezala. Erdu eta gingo dugu berba betiko kontu ez. Atsegin izatearen balioaz, zalantzekin moldatu beharraz, barruan ditugun zuloak, barruko zuloak, nola bete. Erdu. Sentitu goiz aurpegian Goi, goi belgaudenean dena iristen zaigo ospel Adoretsu gaudenean atzera Papurtu egiten da mundua Deno gordetzen dugu betiko besteren alde kutu bat De la secretua de la caixa de la keñua Erdu eta larrutuko ditugu irabazleak Zubitik jauzi egin gaur asbarre isilik begiratuko Diego portuko garabiai, elkarrekin isilik egotea baita, adiskidetasunaren frogarik bennena. Erdu nirekin, erriz aldatu nahi dut, nire garputzau alboha tera utzi eta batean zurekin sartu, gure txekitasunean, mangol joak bezala. Erdu, zure zainago. Duela urtevete tendako istorioa jarraituko dugu. Ibai ondoko urki suriek ustai bat gehiago esbalutae vesala. May, look, May has come in. It's strewn those blue eyes all over the harbor. Come, I haven't had word of you in ages. You are constantly terrified, like the kittens. Our grandfather drowned when we were little. Come, and we'll talk over all the old same things. The value of being pleasant, the need to adjust to the doubts, how to fill the holes we God got inside us. Come. Feel the morning reach in your face. Whenever we are saddened, everything looks dark. When we are heartened again, the world crumbles. Every one of us keeps forever someone else's hidden sight. If it's a secret, if a mistake, if a gesture. Come. And we'll flay the winners, laughing out ourself left off the bridgeway. We'll watch the cranes at work in the port in silence. The gift for being together in silence, being the principal proof of friendship. Come with me. I want to change nations, change towns. Lift this body aside and go into a shell with you, with our smallness, like sea snails. Come, I'm waiting for you. We'll continue the story that ended a year ago, as if inside the white birches next to the river, not a single additional ring had grown.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much for that reading. That was very moving to hear you read that in, in person. Thank you. Have you read Elizabeth Macklin's translation before?
2: Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you know, you know it.
1: Yeah, I know it, but usually I do
2: readings with her. So I do, I do, I do, I read the Basque version and, and she she does the English version. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's really nice to hear my poems in her voice, because I didn't, I don't know. It's like she translates my poems, but it seems
1: that they are hers. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: So why did you choose this, this poem to read at this moment? Wow, <laughs> because
2: May is coming <laughs> and we are at the end of a pandemic. And I hope we are at the beginning of a new era. For the world in peace. And yeah, May is an optimistic poem about a friendship. It was published at the New Yorker in 2003 Mm -hmm. and it was a big surprise for me. I came here with several friends to do poetry readings in New York Mikel Urdenarin, Rafa Rueda, uh, Bingham Mendizabal, and artist Mikel Valverde. So we did a, some readings in New York at Bowery Poetry Club, at CUNY, at the museum, and I saw that people really enjoyed the poems and the bass music, and I realized that, wow. It's possible <laughs> to write in mask and have readers outside and have readers in the United States. So this trip changed me, changed my life. It was it was really short. We, we came for 10 days in March, 2003, but this trip changed my life, my view of the world. So then I came back to the States every year, every year, and then I went to to San Francisco to San Salito uh, with a fellowship. Then I was at OMi, New York, at lady House too. Then I went to to the Washu University <laughs> in San Luis. It was amazing, and then. Lastly, I had this fellowship at the New York Public Library, so
1: we decided to come here, all the family. So that was one of the questions that I wanted to ask you. Your writing very often talks about very specific places, uh, your town of Ondarroa and these details that are completely unique to your town, whether it's words that are only used there or words that are used in one village or gestures that are used or were used um, only by one family or in one place mm-hmm. so your writing is very much trying to describe a place like no other I think so what is the attraction for someone that writes so much about bass culture and about your village what's the attraction of living in New York and li- being in the ultimate world metropolis which is so different than what you write about and where you're from
2: I feel attraction for my hometown because my family was a family of fishermen, the women were at home, women were the ones governing the house, so the family. So men were always outside, men were always sailing. The women of my family were really strong, they were the economists, (laughs) they were workers, they were housekeeping, they were working, they were Mothers too, and they had a strong oral culture that I loved. I love so. My grandmother was a really, really good singer and storyteller, <laughs> and this heritage of oral tradition, I was in love with that. Well, I, I was a child listening to my grandmother singing these old ancient songs these ballads in Basque it was amazing to me because i learned two things one that they were speaking about about a world that had disappeared and second in that songs my grandmother was using a different kind of language, so it was a language with metaphors, symbols, <laughs> and w- when I was a child, I was thinking, "Wow, I love that way of of telling things, telling stories." So I was in love with this oral, big oral tradition my grandmother had. Yeah, and then on Dharma, he said in the in the Bay of Biscay, you know, this big bay. And from the Bay of Biscay, you can see everything. (laughs) If you have a little bit of imagination. And when I was a child, I used to go to the harbor and look to the sea, to the ocean, and imagine that I was going to London, I was going to Amsterdam, I was going to New York. (laughs) I was a big daydreamer when I was a child, and I was a shy, shy boy, so the books were my friends, I had just one or two friends, not more, I used to read a lot, so I was a daydreamer, a big reader, (laughs) so I was always wondering what was beyond the sea, what was in the other part.
1: And now living in the United States, you get to get to see it and have those journeys that you dreamed about? Yeah, <laughs> of course. Let me ask a more general question. Probably most of our listeners are not very familiar with Basque language and culture and literature. And so you write in, in Basque, which is a language that is only spoken by about seven or 800,000 speakers and dominated in many social spheres by Spanish or French. Can you talk a little bit about the the challenges and the advantages of using a small language in general and Basque in particular? So my grandmother,
2: Amparo Echaburu, she went to the Basque school at the beginning of the 20th century. And she learned, she studied how to write and read in Basque. Then my mother, (laughs) she never learned how to write and read in basque. Well okay she, she went she went to the basque school when she was in, in her in her 40s very late and then our generation we went to the basque school again. So my grandmother went to the Basque school and we went to the basque school too but my parents didn't so You have to imagine this big hole in Basque history of 40 years of dictatorship without Basque schools, without Basque books, Mm -hmm. without Basque newspapers, without Basque radio stations, without a lot of things. So this big hole, it's like, wow, (laughs) it's really challenging for, for Basque. For Basque people. My name is Kiermen. It's a Basque name. It's a Basque new name. My mother called me Kiermen in the 70s, but at that time Franco was alive. So my, my name was forbidden. <laughs> and yeah, my, my mother used to go to the court every week and used to tell to the to the man in charge at the court that, yeah. My son will be Kirmen." And the man used to tell her, No, but you cannot. This is in (laughs) Basque. You you have to use another language. You have to choose another language. He can be Jose or Fernando or Jaime, all Spanish names. (laughs) But she was really stubborn and, and really, really Basque. And no, no, she was telling, no, 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 no. This guy is going to die. The dictator is going to die so i will (laughs) i will name him kirman and i will name him kirman at home and when you are able to call him kirman at the court i will inscribe him so that's why i was without a name (laughs) for several years so that was the beginning of my life and at that time then democracy came and Basque schools were legal again, and then Basque middle school were legal when I was growing. While I was growing, the Basque education was growing too. It was amazing. So they were like opening us doors. They were opening schools. They were opening high schools. Lastly, they were opening universities in Basque. So mine is the. One of the first generations doing all all the studies in Basque. So, and this is amazing how my name was forbidden. And then now I'm here at Suani <laughs> telling you my story as a Basque writer. So when somebody, you know, a lot of journalists in Overall in Spain, they, they ask me, but why do, you, why do you write in Basque? And I usually tell them that it's, I don't know, <laughs> why not? All my education was in Basque. I had readings in Basque because they, they uh, happily there, there, uh, there was a, an older, really good generation of writers mm-hmm. that they, they, they were writing in Basque. But my books are translated I used to go to festivals to... I don't know. (laughs) So it has no sense to write in another language just for my career. So I can write in another language for fun or or because I can... I don't know, I feel comfortable in English or, or in Spanish. But not seeing the Basque language as an absurd language that is going to die. So... No sense writing in Basque it's a small culture no 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 I don't have this point of view mm-hmm. and I think that people in the United States have a open mind with Basque more open mind view of Basque than maybe in Spain or France that they see that okay this is a small language this is a like a secondary thing for us <laughs> but here in New York when we are going in the subway and we speak in Basque with the children, there is always somebody asking us, what language are you are you speaking? But in the subway, <laughs> it's amazing, New York. And when we say Basque, they know the language. And they say, oh yeah, it's a really ancient language. It's really interesting. So I found here in New York like a more open mind view of small languages than, than maybe in in Spain and France.
1: Well, and nobody ever asks, why do you write in Spanish or why do you write in in (laughs) French? So it is definitely an unfair question. (laughs) Yeah, of course. One thing I was wondering about is, so the older generation that you mentioned that wrote wonderful books in Basque, uh, like Achaga or Cetar Vitoria. Yes. Cetar Vitoria in particular talks about, he compares himself to uh, St. Ignatius, right? And he says. I'm going to write in Basque or this is what he said when he was younger. I think he's changed. Yeah. I'm going to write in Basque because Basque needs writers. Yeah. Just like the Catholic church needed a a Basque saint, um, (laughs) clearly out of a sense of defense of culture and cultural promotion. Is that still the case? Do you think with your generation, with younger generations, or is that need, um, changing?
2: Yeah, but we still have this sense of trying. So we still have this activism for Basque because if you don't have activism, the situation of the Basque language can be worse. So, I mean, Basque activism or writing in Basque, speaking in Basque, speaking in small languages in all the world could be languages from America, Asia, I don't know, small languages. It's a way to do the world a better place, (laughs) to me. Because writing in Basque, you are working for the diversity of the planet, the cultural and biocultural diversity of the planet. So it's like with another civil rights. You cannot think that, okay, no, equality is done, the racism is no, this is done. This is no, you, we we can forget all about all about that. No, or with the climate change. No, <laughs> we are not going to do nothing. No, anything. I think with the small languages is the same thing as with equality, racism, climate change. You have to fight. Mm-hmm. You have to fight for your rights mm-hmm. always. If not, the situation will. Be worse, mm-hmm. in in in, uh, in in a couple of years. So we we still have this this sensation of this this sense of commitment with the language that Cesarithoria had. I don't know fifty years ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so yeah, we, we still have this point of view, but anyway, we don't see the Basque language as a. It's not an epiphany using <laughs> a religious term I particularly see the Basque language as a positive thing. Uh, we think that we need we, we have to use empathy, a lot of empathy and include a lot of people even if they don't speak Basque to our cause because Basque language is not just, a Basque heritage no we were wrong when we were thinking that the Basque people thinking well Basque is ours no (laughs) Basque is the treasure that we are given to the world Basque belongs to the world not just to Basques
1: and you mentioned The availability of translation and how that, of course, allows writers to reach the world and to live off of their writing, even if using a a smaller language. And we were talking yesterday about your self-translating process, which is very (laughs) unusual. Do you mind sharing how, how you go about translating your novels?
2: At the beginning, I thought that I never will translate my novels into Spanish, I was confident with the the translators and I wanted to show to the Basque community that we had really good translators from Basque to other languages, even Spanish. So I had translators. I always tried to translate from Basque to English, from Basque to Japanese, from Basque to other other languages. But I changed my mind. And now the last novel I translated while I was writing the original version in Basque. So I, I, I was writing the first chapter in Basque and then I was translating this first chapter in Basque in, uh, into Spanish. So it has been a really uh, rich exercise of seeing how your text can work in another language and being a bilingual a little bit trilingual <laughs> person that I am I think it's important to do this journey between languages it's a lot of work but I think it's really positive because you see how how work your text in your second language uh, and you can have a lot, of, a lot of ideas while you are translating your text. It's, a, it's like, I don't know, when the factories are doing a, a new car, <laughs> for instance, so they, they have like proofs, no? For this car, a pressure proof. It's in English, pressure proof? Or I don't know how to say it. It's I like, don't know much about car manufacturing. Pre- it's okay. like, yeah. When you are driving the car really, really, really fast and see how it works. Mm -hmm. So how how works the the engine and those things. So I do the same thing with with my text. Mm -hmm. So I say, oh, it's okay, mask. Okay, let's (laughs) see (laughs) how it works in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And then you can see, wow, this sentence is not so good. So I have to change this Mm -hmm. sentence also in the Basque version. So yeah, I love this journey between languages and yeah of course spanish is my is my language too so it has been a really interesting exercise and i think i will do i, I will do it again
1: i was going to ask because your your first novels there's one one translator credited and it was just the prior life of dolphins that you mm. translated with that and with the help of another translator as well
2: yeah yeah jose Marisasi. Yeah. yeah yeah he's really good he's cool. amazing <laughs> What was his role in that exercise? I used to do the first translation and then he used to revise the translation and, and give me clues. He was like my mirror. <laughs> and then if, if you write in two languages at the same time, you have two publishers and two editors that can see how is going your text. So, and it was really interesting the, to see the how my our editors were seen were reading the book while I was writing it. It was really nice because, as you know, my last novel has three perspectives, three different voices, and each part has a voice, has a narrator, a different narrator. I mean. And then when I ended, or when I finished the first book of the novel, I mean, the novel has three books, no? So I ended my first book with a narrator. They were like really happy with the result. They were like, wow, I, we love the novel, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so both editors. And then... I told them, okay, you are you are really happy, but I'm going to change the narrator now. (laughs) And they were like frightened, (laughs) telling me, no, please.
1: (laughs) Another year waiting for
2: (laughs) No, please. We love that that voice. Don't change it. But something in my insight, in my heart, was telling me that it was necessary, it was compulsory to change the voice. And use a female voice, so I tried, and I, I wrote in a, in that second voice, and then I was really happy. But at the beginning, the editor was telling me, "No, oh, well, <laughs> don't change the the voice because we love it." But I told them, "Okay, but maybe is this first part of the novel is what the reader is waiting." from Kirmen Uribe. No? This is what the readers want to. What the readers want to read from Kirmen Uribe. But I want to change. And I I want to give them like a surprise. <laughs> so the second part will be completely different.
1: We were discussing this yesterday as well, but I I guess this didn't happen probably in, in, in real life as you're writing it, but in the novel, the narrator who's named Uri and is based on Kini <laughs> um goes through a writing crisis and it's his wife, Nora, who appears to be loosely based or maybe closely based on your wife, Nidia. She's the one who takes over and salvages the, the project. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought it was interesting that th- this idea that this collaboration and this kind of giving away authority is the way to resurrect something. And that actually seems to be a theme, I guess, throughout the novel, this idea of dreams that have died or projects that have died or that seem to go nowhere, but they get somehow saved in the end. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is the soul of the novel. No?
2: Can be the soul of the novel because the novel is about my research about suffragist called Rosika Schwimmer and her heritage is in the New York Public Library, it's a big big ar- archive with her papers there and her secretary was, was trying to write a biography of hers for 40 years and never ended <laughs> it was an impossible 10,000 pages biography, it was crazy, a crazy book so she never ended, and I began to continue her book, mm-hmm. no? And in a way, I finished her book with my novel. So Rosica was fighting to stop the First World War, and she, she organized with Henry Ford a peace ship, that was going from Hoboken, New Jersey, to Europe, and they wanted to stop the war. She didn't achieve it, but then her ideas of pacifism were used to build the United Nations later, 30 years later. So I always think that when... Someone loses <laughs> in her or his goals, his, his projects. You can have a dream, and this dream is it's really difficult to, to achieve, and you, you feel that everything was unsuccessful, but then always there is another person <laughs> that takes your dream. And maybe this dream will come true. No? Mm-hmm. So I love this idea of justice built with several several losses, several unsuccessful projects that at last, maybe decades of years later, you see them come true, like with feminism or Climate change, ecology, those things always had been crazy people <laughs> <laughs> fighting for these things or against racism or fighting for the rights of the migrants. But they were crazy people, really crazy. But now those topics are are mainstream. So... My mother was a feminist in the seventies, but she was the only one in the <laughs> in, in the village. She and a couple of two, three, four women they were feminists at the seventies. But now she's telling me always, "Can't you see that our ideas <laughs> are mainstream ideas now?" So yeah, that's that's the soul of one of the souls of 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 the novel so also how justice i think it it was martin luther king told this that the justice has a really long long orbit
1: i think it's uh, i can't remember the quote exactly, yeah yeah but yeah the, but it's the idea is beautiful the arc of history is long but it bends towards justice yeah I think yeah it is. yeah 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 so i believe
2: that too <laughs>
0: Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu Ralston.
1: So as you said the the second half of the prior life of dolphins it's uh nora becomes the narrative voice and mm. it seems like it's a risky proposition where you'd be worried about appropriating the female voice and being a, a male writer speaking for a woman i was wondering about your your thoughts on that and you know how you how you felt about using that using that voice i truly
2: understand these feelings that come from women so I, I truly understand. But this is, in this case, this is not an appropriation. It's, it's at a step that all, I think, all the male, all men should do. So I was writing about Rosika Schwemer, about a suffragist, about my mother and the feminist struggles in the 70s in, the, in Spain, and in the Basque country particularly, and then the next step was to give the voice to a woman. So it's the first book is told by a male person, and then I thought that it was necessary to change the voice. and and be silent, (laughs) no, be silent, and give the voice to a a woman. So in this novel, the form of of the novel has a big meaning too. The form has a meaning. (laughs) So that's why I tried to be a woman. I tried to feel like a woman. I tried to think like a woman. And that's why I changed the voice and changed the, the narrative voice to Nora. But after a lot of a lot of hours of, uh, of speaking with with my wife Nerea and other women about how they feel and I think after all my life living living with women, no? because as I said at the beginning, men in 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 my house were absent in a house of fishermen <laughs> they were just for a couple of hours uh, with us my father was he was uh, at home for two days and he was with us with her, with his wife with our mother and then with his friends too <laughs> he had two days for everything so they were absent. So this book is about the women that had been important in my life. And that's why I changed the voice. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's in the way of the new male, new male roles that we are now working on. Men are working on being different men. How to be different how to work with women together for equality so this was an exercise in that in that way with that philosophy of of new male roles how to be a good man a new man
1: Mm -hmm. i think in the last 10 years or so very long overdue but i think past literature has been more dominated by male authors or quite dominated by male authors and it's really been the last few years that the women writers are starting to get more recognition in terms of institutional recognition and prizes and critical attention and so there definitely seems to be a moment in basque literature that the recognition that this process should happen and i don't know if you've read Jayo's novel mm-hmm. the house of the father right and mm-hmm. it to be translated in english if it were translated in english that would be the title Uh, where the it's also about a writer who's the protagonist and he goes through this exact process actually trying to prepare himself to be able to put himself in a woman's skin i mean i think an author is always putting him or herself into someone else's skin and trying to live someone else's experience of course so he's preparing himself to be able to write from a feminine perspective so i thought it was interesting that there was this moment and that this novel is participating in that
2: Yeah, of course, of course, of course. I think it's happening in in the whole world, no? I think now the publishers are women. My Basque publisher is is a woman. My Spanish publisher is a woman. My Catalan publisher is a woman. My German publisher is a woman. My English publisher is a woman. (laughs) So, my God. (laughs) So, it was unfair that the majority of the writers were men. And now we are, we, yeah, there are a lot of really good, good female writers that I love. I teach creative writing in Spanish at NYU, and we used to read Chima Ngozi Adichie, Claudia Rankine, Valeria Luiselli, Sarah Stridsberg, Leila Guerrero. a lot of female writers, but then, yeah, I I, I, I truly love Emmanuel Carrer and <laughs> and Sebald. So, so maybe from twelve writers we read, two are male, but they are great, mm-hmm. like Sebald and Emmanuel Carrer.
1: you You've mentioned uh, Max Sebald these days as someone who uh, very much influenced you, and I think you've you've said that he is that all of the twentieth century was shaped by his writing.
2: Yeah, it's 21st century. 21st century literature can't be understood without Siebel, can't be understood. So it has been a big revolution in in writing in the 21st century. And it it comes first from, from the new technologies, from internet, the social media, the cell phones. So our life, changed a lot so with journalism novels changed with cinema with films novels changed and now with new technologies literature is changing too so it's normal so because in thousands of years literature has been changing because society was changing (laughs) So, that thing is really important. So, new technologies in literature. The but then, Sebald changed the view of fiction and not fiction, everything, because he began to write novels without plot, <laughs> and without main character. And those ideas that were really clear during the 19th 19th century and 20th century that novel has to have a main character novel has to have a strong plot no (laughs) no it's not necessary now so now in fiction the voice the voice is the most important thing the style is the most important thing why because cinema is better writing plots. Series are much better writing plots than, than, no, than in novels. So novels are going to have another shape and this shape will be more related to the voice or different voices and also to the style how do you write in a beautiful way and then to the structure of the novel so because the novel has have this structure they are like buildings they are like cathedrals and this is why i love novels because of the structure they have it's amazing
1: <laughs> i know it's it's important for you to um up with new new structures and new ways of uh telling stories and it's been many decades since we've been discussing uh being in a, a time of literature of exhaustion and borges wrote about how there were you know, there were no new stories to tell and so to what to what extent uh, i know, you know your writing has been a quest for I, mean, I don't know if originality is the is the word um i mean how possible is it now to be original and how important is it to Try to be original or to try to be different or to try to be new. Yeah, it's really important.
2: (laughs) I think again it's important, no? I think in the 20th century, the last part, the 80s, 70s, 80s. So there was this idea of not to be original. So this idea of metafictional writing and those things. But now. In the 21st century, yeah, I think the writers, I think we are living a new modernity era. So we're going from postmodern era to another post-postmodern era. So a new modern era where originality is really important again. And then, as I said, with new technologies, seeing how life changed a lot in twenty years. So we can be really free. Uh, we can we can wow well, I think novel is really open to new forms. And you can see in, in a, a lot of novels that, that they are writing now. So novels have now like a transgender or I don't know how to say like an hybrid forms like with different genres mm. in it. And it's amazing. And you can use forms from Twitter or from Facebook or from from Wikipedia to build your novels. So, yeah, we are really open to be different now. And in it, I think New York and United States helped me a lot. Because maybe in Spain and in the Basque Country, literature is more looking at the past, at the past, they are more looking at tradition. Okay, maybe it's different. So in Spain, they are looking more at tradition because Spanish tradition is really strong. And um, in the Basque country, because we hadn't a big tradition, we want now to write conventional Novels, conventional poetry we want to write correctly, <laughs> but not definitely. So I came to the states and in New York it's New York it's it's amazing because you can write about everything in <laughs> in the form that, that you want you can invent new forms and this is well seen by the people so. When you are trying to do a different novel they say okay this is great <laughs> but not not in maybe in Spain and in the Basque country things are going more slowly and they are more doubts and fears about how to be original
1: but i think you're writing you seem to be someone who is very interested in the just the the pleasure of yeah. Telling stories and hearing yeah. stories. And I think yeah. your style for me is maybe deceptively simple, as you yeah. put it, because the grammar is not difficult to, to read. The, <laughs> so I think there is a certain directness. And I guess it's maybe been described as a certain orality to your writing. Am I right to say that as much as trying to do something different that you're also trying to just, just tell a good story, just to, yeah. you know, much In as a we're, clear way. Yeah. as yeah. much as we're yeah. talking now to be able to um, entertain and to speak very directly to to your reader
2: yeah yeah and i think i work a lot with with the sentences with my prose if you see how the books are written especially this last one it has been a really hard work hard hard working well it was it was really hard to write so clear So I write and then rewrite a lot and rewrite and delete (laughs) and add things. But I like the text be like a river, a clear water in the river. So the reader can read it in a really nice way, fast way. But then the book can be... Easy to read, but it's it was really difficult (laughs) to write, no? My books are about life, about life, about the difficulties of life, but also about small pleasures in life. So I I don't like to be very melodramatic. So I don't like these books that they are like just negative. I always, I don't know why, I don't know why, but I always look at the bright side. And even in my books, there are really sad passages. But then there is always a little bit of light. (laughs) That's how I see the life. You are living and nothing happens. And then you have like a tragedy. That maybe uh you lose someone, or someone someone is dead, or someone is attacked. There there is violence in the life, there is bullying, there are a lot of bad things, but then there are, there are a lot of beautiful things. Overall, in the in the details, you have to see the details in life. When I came to Suani, I was I was in love, I was excited by the campus, the buildings, the small details. <laughs> you can see in the, in the building, this space in the library is so beautiful. So, you have to be able to see beautiful details in life to continue living, no? My mother is like that, it's also, she's always happy. She lost her husband a, lo- a long time My My father died when I was like 20-something. But she's, she's still happy and she has um, a garden and she takes care of her flowers and with really small things. And she used to take photos with her cell phone and send to me. <laughs> and look, my roses are, are, are blooming, no? And she's happy with that, with just a rose, or with, with just looking at the weather and, and telling, okay, today will be a sunny day. So my novels are like that, has, has this, my mother's, this spirit of being positive in life, but not hiding the bad things. As you know, the best art works. The sublime artworks are beautiful, but also they are really dark. Mm -hmm. They have a dark side. So a good novel needs dark sides, but also this view, this sublime view of life, this light of, of life.
1: So, I, I'm much more familiar with your prose than, than with your poetry, but it strikes me that The Prior Life of Dolphins is not fragmentary the same way Bilbao, New York Bilbao is. But I think it still seems to kind of be organized as these uh, anecdotes and, and the search for for images mm. too that to me seems to relate to your poetry that you, you find this maybe mm. like the the photograph that your, your mother would send you that you're <laughs> searching for, you know, that... The, the book seems to be made up of these, maybe one kind of one page, or maybe a little longer, but these kind of nuggets that revolve around different images and that you leave it up to your reader to kind of untangle those those images.
2: Yeah, Bilbao, New York Bilbao was written in a really transgressive way <laughs> because I wanted to write a really different novel inspired by internet. So, Bilbao, New York Bilbao is set in a flight between Bilbao and New York, um, I am going in that flight. Kiermen Uribe is going in that flight. In in that fictional mm-hmm. fi- flight, <laughs> so the novel is built just with my thoughts and my memories. And I was I, I'm going in in that flight, and I, I'm thinking on the novel that I'm writing, but the novel itself doesn't exist <laughs> it's just to tell what is surrounding that hypothetical novel and i was really truly inspired by the internet so its structure is like a net so one thing it's related to another is linked to another thing so one story is linked to another story and this another story is linked to another story. So it's ha- it's it's like when you are opening different pages in internet <laughs> and then from this page you can go to another page. That's the structure of Bilbao Bilbao. But in this novel I try to write in a longer way, more longer way. So the voice is more telling you different things but it, it is not So fragmentarian, the voice has a long, long, long breath. So different things are told. A reader told me that it is like a (laughs) three-dimensional voice. (laughs) You can see different things. So it's like an involving voice. And you can see different things of life with that voice. But poetry has been really important in in the way I write novels because one, poetry has music and novels need music to work so a prose without music without rhythm, doesn't work very well no good novels have music in it and then the second thing is the the blank spaces. So poetry is what are you telling, but overall what you are not telling. <laughs> the silent things are more important. The blank spaces are more important than the parts you are reading, no, in, in poetry. For example, in the aikus, there are really small, small, small poems, mm-hmm. and you have to imagine everything. <laughs> So in my novel like use ellipses a lot. Yeah, I love ellipses. I love. I love not to tell everything. I think one of the big mistakes of of the writer is to try to tell everything. You don't have to tell everything. My grandmother told me once, no, don't tell everything. You have to hide things. Not tell everything. Not tell everything.
1: And not to Not to be boring. Let me ask before we have to finish. So this last novel, The Pirate Life of Dolphins, was written in in New York City during the pandemic, writing it in the the midst of the lockdown. How did that affect you both practically, but especially mentally as you were editing and writing this novel?
2: Yeah, I was, I was writing the novel and at the beginning of the pandemic, I stopped because I was really worried of my children if they were happy, or how they were studying online. The school was online, so they were studying online, and it was difficult for them. So I really worried with them, and I stopped writing. But then, pandemic gave me a clue for the novel too. It was creative (laughs) for the novel too. And the second part of the novel... It's set in the pandemic time in New York. So I had an idea of changing the voice in the pandemic, because during the pandemic we remembered a lot of people, maybe friends or maybe people from our family that we don't see in years. So I think a lot of people start to write letters or emails to, to friends and members of the family because you have time to remember them. <laughs> so I organized the second part of, of the novel as a letter that Nora, Uri's wife, <laughs> write to her best friend Maider. It's a long, long, long letter that was never sent. So the idea of the, of, the, of the second part of the novel came with the pandemic. And it was great. It was great. Yeah. So it was creative too. We were together at home, at the apartment in New York. Me, Nerea, and the children. So we had a good time. It was fun too. <laughs> so we were worried with the world, with the family in, in the vast country. But then we were together and we could play together and we could do things together. And it was great, it was great. So it, it, it had a, a good side, the pandemic in our family life. Yeah, we could know each other better. Well, Kirmen Uribe, thank you
1: oh. so much for your time <laughs> um, and for, for uh, speaking with us.
2: No, it, it has been a pressure, David. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website, or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages, at The Sewanee Review. Until next time, this is The Sewanee Review, new since 1892.